0: Over the past several weeks, um, the focus of the message is, uh, I know with, with Jeff, and for some reason with me, I don't know why the Lord leads this way, but focusing on this idea of the fact that we are, you know, you know well, I, last week touching on this, that there's the aorist tense of when we believe in Christ, Very significant in the New Testament. We gave several examples of that. And then the instructions that we have as believers, which follow that. And I'm on it again today. Um, I was desperate. I pray. You know, I always ask the Lord, where do I go? What do I preach on? You know, what topics do we need uh, to know and to understand? And so this is where I am. Now, this one, unfortunately, I just wanted to warn you ahead of time, was a little more technical, and I, I, I hope I can get through it and make sense of it so that you uh, can grasp some things that are significant uh, in, in New, the New Testament. In particular, we're talking about the Apostle Paul here and how he uses certain words like Yahweh, and Messiah, and the Greek word for Lord, which is kurios. I think you're most of you are familiar with that word. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, and um, i got a lot of verses to look at, so there won't be much uh, page turning here, because it'll be difficult to keep up. Um, <clears throat> this Greek word, kurios, um, is a a pretty fluid word. In other words, it can be used in a lot of different contexts. Um, one of those in a secular context just means somebody who's, and you remember, you have to think back to the uh, culture that was evident and practiced in, in the first century. And, of course, hundreds of years before that, and I I would imagine a, a few hundred, I don't know how many, following that. So what that is is simply that um, it, the head of a household, you may remember, had a lot of authority, and he was called a lord. He was lord of the house, and all that meant was he was boss. He ruled, ruled the day. Um, and then you have, um, uh, well, and especially when you had a household that had slaves in it because slaves had masters. And you may remember that from Colossians chapter 3, which we'll look at again a little later. The word kurios is translated masters, but they were considered lords because they had total authority over them. And that applied in most situations. So, excuse me, you have uh, these pagan gods that were called lords. So that's another application of this use of the word kurios. Uh, Paul also used this word to refer to um, Israel's God. And again, I've got several passages listed here um, that we don't have time to look up. So uh, I'm going to keep moving on. But my point that I want to get to is in how Paul uses this word the majority of the time, and not just that word, but these others, because they're all connected. And hopefully when I'm done, we'll be able to pull it together and make them fit and make some sense out of this. Now, in, in many, many ways Paul uses this, this word curios. In Romans 14, he says he uses the expression Lord Jesus then over in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 though he says Jesus Christ our lord so you think clearly about lord here we use it in such a i guess you want to say we don't really stop and think we just say well thank you lord Jesus or whatever without really recognizing what the implication of that word Lord means. And, well, we're going to move on because hopefully that's what we'll get to. Uh, In Romans chapter 5, Galatians chapter 6, he calls him Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, Colossians 2, he says Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans chapter 4, it's Jesus our Lord. Now, some of these are significant in that you know Paul doesn't just move them around and say, "Well, I'm I'm bored," you know. I'm going to instead of saying Jesus is Lord, I'm going to say Lord Jesus this time. He has a specific thing in mind. Why he's doing that? Uh, if if and you know the question should come I, I to us. Why did the early believers? And why did Paul begin referring to Jesus as Lord? What caused them to begin doing that? In other words, why didn't they just call him Jesus? Or Jesus the Christ, the Messiah? Why was it Lord Jesus? Or why was it Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there's a reason why. And the the reason stands in one event the resurrection. The fact that Christ rose from the dead was a significant event, and hopefully we'll again see how that fits into the whole picture here. But when when you look at the birth of Christ, which we are celebrating over these few weeks, when you look at the the idea of the birth of Christ, that God came to this earth in flesh. And then he ultimately ended up being crucified. And the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension was a marking point for the early believers because it was a signal (coughs) That, excuse me, that God was inaugurating something new, a new age. The old age was passing away, and something new had come. And it was a significant event for them, and they recognized that. Excuse me. Boy, in Acts chapter 2, you remember Peter's message there, and. One of the things that he said, and I'm skipping over a lot of it, but the point we want to get to is in his sermon. In verse 32, he said, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David didn't, and by the way, of course, it's only this has only been fifty days later. The sermon was being preached fifty days after Jesus had been crucified. So it's fresh in, in the memory of those who were listening. He said to them, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, and, of course, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in that quotation, if you remember from the Old Testament, when he says the Lord, it's Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adon. And so he, Paul or Peter here is picking up on that and letting us know that something has happened. Something has occurred. This resurrection, and it meant there was a new thing, that Jesus was Lord. And so he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, it's going to be important that we see how Paul uses the word Christ and the connection with the crucifixion. But we're coming to that. So, let me get a drink. So we want to look at that whole concept and idea. uh, That's what we're looking at today is why this application by Peter and the use by Paul of this word Lord, along with Kurios, or excuse me, along with Messiah and the word Yahweh. Now, the meaning of the word Lord just means a simple thing one who is supreme in authority. That's a Lord. One who has the authority to do whatever he has the position for. In Philippians chapter 2, we're familiar with that passage, verses 9 through 11. We want to look at that where he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we notice there that he says, in the heavens, on the earth, and below the earth, everything there is. It's not just saying, you know, the unsaved are going to bow. Every creature, even the ones in heaven, are going to bow to the Lord Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. The one who has gained this supreme authority and how he gained it was because of the resurrection. Um. And because of that, then, when we assemble together as a church, you know, it's our duty to recognize that Jesus is Lord over the church, over us. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, or if we just say Lord Jesus, for whatever reason, when we pray, or when we're sharing our testimony, or whatever. We have to recognize why he is Lord and why he has supreme authority. Now, we have to cover the word Christ, which is the word for Messiah in the New Testament. And I mentioned that when Paul uses the word Christ, In virtually every case, he makes a connection with the crucifixion. Now, in my notes, I put generally, in general, in general. You know, this is a a sweeping statement. It doesn't include every single instance. But the pattern is evident that Paul primarily uses it this way. So if you look at Romans chapter 5, you would see there that I'm just going to read a few verses so you can pick up on the idea. Paul said, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says in verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, he doesn't go on to say, was buried, rose, you know, rose from the grave, and then ascended. It's all, all of that's encompassed in this, Compound word, Christ died, or or these two words. In chapter 14 of of Romans, he says, For to this end Christ died and lived again. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, But we preach Christ crucified. In verse 15, he says, uh, which we're very familiar with in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared. So Galatians chapter 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And then he says that, uh, you know, he says, uh, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died. Messiah died. Death And by implication, of course, then, the resurrection in these passages is associated with the word Messiah. And so when Paul is uh, discussing the crucifixion, he nearly always refers to Christ. He doesn't say Jesus was crucified. He says Christ was crucified. And and I and I could there's many other passages that I could I could read, but I just wanted to give you the idea so that you would see that this is a significant where well, we're going to see at least that this is a significant thing. Now uh, we the distinction we want to note here, and I, and this is where it gets a little technical. But uh, my apologies to Jerry because he does it too, so I can do this <laughs> when. Paul uses the word Christ in connection with the crucifixion. The verb he uses is indicative. And if you remember, the indicative verbs do what? They simply show forth reality. In other words, this is the way it is. This, this, is, this is what's happening and so you think that through when Paul uses the, you know, Christ, Messiah, in connection with the resurrection, he's telling us that this is the reality of what has happened in the world, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That is the thought that Paul wants to plant in our minds when we see those phrases in the scriptures, Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, there's another connection. Paul talks about us, believers then, being in Christ. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So when you think about that, consider that. Messiah, God, came into the earthly realm from the spiritual realm in the person of Jesus, and he took on a body of flesh, was crucified. Now, and that and that was an indicative. This this is the reality, folks. Even when Peter was preaching and Paul was preaching and is and going out and establishing his churches, he was preaching to them this in that indicative uh, mood. This is the reality. When they responded to that gospel message and believed it, then they are said to be in Christ. As a matter of fact, um, then what it, well, let me put it this way. So if Jesus came to establish a new order, in the world, by coming into the earthly realm to be born as a babe with a body of flesh and to be crucified, then for us to be in Christ means that we have identified with Messiah and his crucifixion. Now, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2, it says this, The saints, and you know this is the greetings that Paul's sending to the church at Colossae. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. So he's letting them know up front their position in the Messiah. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, to further explain that, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So what's the point? Messiah has come. He's established something new in the power of his resurrection, a new age, a new thing that has come to the world, and those who believe have been transferred into Christ. That's why Paul could say in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. And so when you and I have believed, we were crucified with Christ. We no longer belong to that old world. We belong to something new. And Paul calls it the kingdom of the son of his love, or in the ESV, which I've got here, his beloved son. Now, he goes on. That, that establishes that. That's the reality. Now, how about the word kurios? How about the word Lord, then? This one of supreme authority. This one, because of the resurrection, then, has gained the title because of the victory of his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to God the Father. But when he uses the word Lord, he uses imperative verbs, verbs of command, verbs telling us what to do. Now that we are in Christ, you don't just go on living your life any old way you want to. You now have some commands. Paul gives ethical instructions about how we're to live. For instance, you don't steal. People in Christ don't do that. You don't cheat. You don't lie. You don't commit adultery or other immoral acts. This is the way it is when you are in Christ. Your whole life, what it used to be over here, has got to change. There's something new about being in Christ. Now, oh, and by the way, there's some. It's not all negatives either. Now that you're in Christ, there's some positives, like Paul tells us: love one another, and 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 you know. The New Testament is full of instructions like that about how you and I are to conduct ourselves with one another in the body of Christ. You see, when we are in him, then we are members of his body. And so the body then has collectively, corporately come together today. And those commands apply to us. And the fact that Jesus is Lord over us as we sit here right now. And so to willfully ignore that, you do so at your own peril. And Jerry read this morning, I think, about judgment. You know, how we have lived is significant to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. And we will answer to him for that. Whether it's individually, as you and I sit in our pew, or whether it's corporately as a church, how we as a corporate entity or body, how we represent ourselves in this community. So, having said that, the indicative verbs then that Paul used in connection with the word Christ tells us what to believe. The imperative verbs tell us how to act or how to behave as a believer. Um, I guess I should, I'll, I'll share a few verses hopefully just a few, uh, regarding this whole thing about the imperatives. And I don't think it's difficult to see when we read Paul's instructions in the letters that he wrote, because in almost every letter, he first tells them what to believe, and then there will be a chapter break somewhere, most of the time, and then he'll tell us with instructions how to act, how to behave. So he tells us in Philippians 4, and, and I want to notice here that he, well, okay, I'll just say this. It says there, stand up firm in the Lord. In Philippians 3, he says, rejoice in the Lord. In, verse, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 16 and Romans 16, he says, uh, you know, when he's saying, greet so and so, he says, greet so and so in the Lord. In other words, what I'm trying to point out here is that these have imp- imperatives. And when he has the imperative, he doesn't say, in Christ. Don't greet so and so in Christ, it's in the Lord because he's speaking to those who are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, back there again, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 58, it says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be, you see these imperatives, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This all has to do with what happens after you have been found in Christ. So when Paul's giving these ethical instructions, um, he's telling believers, you and I, how to live, how to behave ourselves. And that demands change. And oh boy, oh boy, that's the struggle. That's the fight we get into change change from being what we were to what Jesus wants us to be now under his lordship you know I I can't get away I don't know I was thinking about doing a sermon but I can't get away from this this verse in Proverbs chapter 25 I think it's verse 13 Um, you know it says there that we have a soft tongue, a soft tongue. And you, you think about that. You can be the healthiest individual on the earth. You can run and, and get yourself in shape, you can lift weights, You're, we can do all kinds of things to make our body fit and to make us strong. It doesn't matter. You might be deathly ill laying on a hospital bed, it doesn't matter, all of us. Have a soft tongue. And of course, we know what James says about the use of the tongue. So that has to do with our conduct. And by the way, sometimes, you know, I don't know, there's no way for you to recognize it, but sometimes I'm preaching to myself when I'm up here. You wouldn't know that, but I am. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that's the situation, you remember, where the man's son was having a sexual relationship with, with the man's wife. It wasn't his mother, but it was his, well, I don't know this what the situation was, if he had been divorced or and remarried or his first wife had died or what it was. That doesn't matter, really. The point of it is he was in an incestuous relationship, and Paul says, get him out. Such things do not belong here in the body. You don't just sit back and pray pray for so-and-so. No, he says, remove him from your midst. These are ethical instructions that Paul gave, how we as a church corporately should act and be in order to protect the testimony of the Lord. But he doesn't say Christ. Christ. He says in every instance here, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord. In Romans 14, you had the situation about where the weaker brother uh, would not eat, the stronger brother, he knew he could eat certain things, and it was not a problem in the church. And Paul tells him, he says, One observes a day, and he does it to honor the Lord. Now, that could be, let's just say, somebody in here picked out a day. There's a certain day in the year on the calendar, and you decided, this is a day that I'm going to honor the Lord. I am going to do whatever it is, something that's significant to that person. The next guy says, wait a minute. That's just another day in the year. What's the point of all this? and he's doing it with pure motives, he's also going to honor the Lord. (laughs) Paul says, both of you are doing this, so acknowledge it. Don't let it ruin the weaker guy. Don't come along and say, that's a bunch of nonsense, because he's doing it to honor not Christ, but the Lord. It's the Lordship of Christ that's in view. And so, and, and the imperatives, again, remember that he's telling them, commanding them regarding these things. He says, i go on, he says in verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. If Jesus is Lord, and you are acting as an individual, not corporately as the body of Christ, But if you, as an individual, choose to honor the Lord by observing some certain day for some reason, then Paul says, don't let it bother you, you stronger brother in the Lord, because he's doing it to honor him, just like you don't do it to honor the Lord. Then he goes on, though, at the end, at the last verse, or at the end of the passage, he says, for to this end, that is because they are doing these things to honor the Lord, to this end, he says, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to run out of time, so I'm not going to read that one. I hope you get the idea over and over and over. If you're looking carefully when you read your Bible, that you'll see these things and realize that I'm, if I'm a believer and I have recognized that Jesus has come, God has arrived in the person of Jesus, in the flesh, then I, and I believe in that gospel, then I am in Christ. You can't get back out of it. So as we would, you know, the terminology we would use is you are saved. You are safe. You are in Christ. But when it comes to conduct, that's a whole nother story. And Jerry was reminding us of that this morning in Sunday school. Our desire is to hear Jesus approve of us when we meet him and to hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful slave. Of course, we all want to hear that. But if we do, then it demands that we recognize that Jesus is Lord both over my life as an individual and also over the church, the body of Christ. And the reason is because we are in him. Now, boy, I'm going to have to skip this part here, I guess. Or I'm going to try to summarize it. Um, You know, you, you have the same pattern, the same parallel in the Old Testament God brought his people out of Egypt he delivered them you know that that's an indicative it's a statement of reality and, it, and if you look in the Greek Old Testament the Septuagint you'll find there it is I looked it up I said I wonder if it's there sure enough it was an indicative God brought them out of Egypt. That was a fact. This is the reality, Israel. As you are making your way up through the wilderness, going up to the promised land, this is the reality. God has delivered you. What does he do then, though? Oh, man. Try reading Exodus and Leviticus and God gives them all kinds of instructions about how they are to conduct themselves under the covenant that he made with them. Boy, oh boy, did their lives ever change from how they lived when they were in Egypt now that they were under the authority of Yahweh. It was a whole new ball game. So all I'm trying to point out here is that in the Pentateuch, in in, in Genesis, Exodus, and particularly Leviticus, they, uh, scholars have what they call the holiness code in the book of Leviticus. And it's nothing but chapter after chapter of instructions about how Israel is to live under this new covenant. Of course, now it's the old covenant, and we are under a new, new covenant that is far better and there's so many other things I'd like to say about that but I hope that you understand and see that the word messiah was significant because it was always connected with the resurrection and it indicated and reflected a statement of reality that god has come in the flesh that's christmas But then he also suffered, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That is what gave him authority then over the church, over you and I as individuals, that because of when we received him as our Savior, when we acknowledged the gospel, we were then transferred, placed in Christ, or in the kingdom of the Son of His love. We're in a new thing. It's a new era now. And, and you, boy, you know, as kingdom believers, I'm afraid that we have a tendency to want to just push the kingdom off into the future. That's the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. So you need to know it's already started. If you believe the gospel, then you need to know that the kingdom for you and I has already been inaugurated. Now there's a world out there that knows nothing about it. And when we go out at, at, into the world, you know we're in the kingdom. And because we are in the kingdom, we better act like it. Now there's coming a day when Jesus will come back, and he will establish and manifest, reveal that kingdom, and take his throne of power and will become very real then to the whole world. And they will then bow and acknowledge Christ as Lord of all. And it won't just be the earth that will do it. Paul says it's every, all the heavenly beings, all the earthly, and all those under the earth. These three realms. I better quit. So let's pray. Father, what a joy, what a wonderful thing it is for us to say Jesus is Lord. To know that when he came to this earth, He came with a purpose in mind, and that was to deliver us, to bring us to that point where we would surrender ourselves to be followers of him and and acknowledge that. But we also recognize the realities of judgment and to know that you are going to hold us accountable for how we've conducted ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts to be diligent about the way we walk and how we act and conduct ourselves as Christians. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.